Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. So my name is Luis Cabrera. I'm the co-convener of the Griffith Asia Institute Seminar Series. We're very pleased to uh, be welcoming back to Griffith Professor Yanis Lam. He's currently adjunct professor in the Griffith Asia Institute. Was until recently director um, at the director level in the, in the International Labor Organization in Geneva. Has a lot of very interesting uh, insights to offer from that experience. And um, he, he held the position of Professor of International Business School of, in the School of International Business and Asian Studies here at Griffith from 2003 to 2010 after joining Griffith in 1989, so certainly one of those people who built up the institution. Um, an international development economist educated at Manchester and Cambridge, and since the mid-1980s he's worked as an external expert for the ILO and on some occasions for the UN Development Program. He has authored or co-authored more than 100 publications, and today he will speak to us on this topic, Is There a Case for Front-Loaded Fiscal Consolidation in Azerbaijan? A Growth and Employment Perspective. Thank you, Lou, for your kind uh, introduction and, and to, to say that it's great to be back um, among familiar faces. Uh, lots of memories get, get, of course, activated as a result of, of being here. I picked Azerbaijan, and I think when I talked to Larry about it, he said, well, is that Uzbekistan or Azerbaijan that I'm going to talk about? So we'll start with a map. I think that would be the best way to do it. Um, I'm not in any way implying that your geography is somehow deficient, but it's useful to have a look where Azerbaijan is. I think it's technically called a West Asian country, but it likes to think of itself as part of Europe as well, and looks to Europe for, uh, for all kinds of inspiration in terms of setting standards and so on and so forth. As you can see, it's ringed around by <coughs> Russia. As a, although you can't see, it's actually Russia at the top. Northwest and west is Georgia and Armenia, and uh, down below, it's Iran. 95% of Azerbaijanis are Azeris, and they speak a language that's very, very similar to Turkish. So they have a lot of cultural affinity and linguistic similarities with, uh, with Turkey. As part of this work, um, I actually started this work when I was with the ILO in Geneva um, last year. Um, and then I, as part of this work, I made two field visits. Um, and let me give you a sense of how the work actually came about. It was commissioned by the Moscow office of the International Labour Organization. The reason why Moscow contacted me is that Moscow, the Moscow office is responsible for looking after the various activities of the ILO in Azerbaijan and Central Asia and some parts of the world there. So that's why the Moscow office. And uh, the Moscow office, in turn, was responding to a request by the Minister for Labor of the Azerbaijan government to have an externally validated paper that uh, the minister could use in internal policy dialogue with the Ministry of Finance. And so when we went over there to find out more about the nature of this request, it became pretty clear that there was a, a bit of a conflict within the government. There are those who believe that Azerbaijan should really engage in fiscal consolidation, essentially cost-cutting exercises, reining in budget deficits, and so on and so forth. And there are those, like the Minister of Labor, who felt that it was a, a premature move and not really responding to the particular circumstances of, of Azerbaijan. So there was this debate, internal debate going on, and he wanted some independently done paper that could fortify his case 
with his Ministry of Finance counterparts. The reason why the ILO's approach is, is fairly straightforward. Uh, constitutionally, uh, the ILO is mandated to have the Ministry of Labor in every country, in every member state, as its traditional interlocutor. That's the reason why, uh, whenever the Ministry of Labor sends a request, the ILO is obliged to respond to it in some fashion. Either it can s diplomatically say no, or, or it, it, it does go ahead and do this work. In this particular case, that is what it tried to do. <clears throat> and you might wonder, why did they get hold of a retired ILO official to write something? Um, I guess uh, the topic was too hot to handle, and they thought, okay, if it's done by somebody who can cop the flak and not an ILO official, then it's, 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 it's uh, in a sense, a diplomatically easier thing to do. So that's probably all the reason. And, of course, I've done a reasonable amount of work on it before. So we had a so-called closed-door presentation. The minister was there along with his deputies and his, and his uh, key bureaucrats, and we made a presentation on the 17th of June. So this paper really follows from that, and the views I have to offer as, as, as an obligatory uh, statement should be attributed to me. It does not represent the official position of the island nor of the Azerbaijan government. Although I'm talking about Azerbaijan, um, I think a moment's reflection will tell us that the issues that we cover resonate globally. Uh, very recently, two former colleagues of mine, I, I supervised this work before I left, they looked at what are called surveillance reports, bilateral surveillance reports of the IMF. They're called Article 4 consultations. The IMF is constitutionally mandated to do that with member states. And out of the 100 documents that we reviewed from 2014 to 2015, uh, 91 of them recommended fiscal consolidation. So 91% of the, of the cases, the standard advice was you must do something about your budget. Either raise tax revenues or, or curtail expenditure or do some combination of the two. If you think about Australia, I think that you don't really hear the term budget uh, fiscal consolidation so much in Australia, and I, I was struck when I didn't hear this because it's otherwise well known. Here the term of choice seems to be budget repair. Somehow the budget needs to be repaired, and so the term of choice is budget repair. And everybody, you know, with a an economist speaking on, on the telly to, to just about anybody on both sides of the political divide. Budget repair seems to be something that has to be recited mantra-like in mantra-like fashion without recognizing uh, or even trying to do some you know, reasonably robust empirical analysis why do we really need that. And I'm using the term front-loaded uh, because that's the term that uh, a lot of people use simply to say Front-loaded is just another fancy of saying you must do the fiscal consolidation now rather than later. If you do it later, it is so-called back-loaded uh, uh, consolidation. So that's the reason why I use it like that. But in the Australian case, uh, I mean, I think, as I said, the term is budget repair, and the same kind of arguments are made. If you go back to the statements of former Prime Minister Tony Abbott and former Treasurer Joe Hockey, and they said the way to prosperity lies in cutting down wasteful spending and engaging in budget repair and that Australia should live within its means. This is an expression that Angela Merkel uses all the time. This is an expression that Obama has been known to use every now and then. So let me start then by offering a definition of what we mean by fiscal consolidation here so that we know exactly what we're talking about and we'll take it from there. And I define it as the use of multiple instruments, which I will not specify at the moment, uh, to reduce public debt and budget deficit. 
Of course, when we say reduce, do we reduce it by 5%, 10%, 2%, reduce it to what level? Therefore, we need targets. So, okay, the budget deficit today is 4%. Uh, in about three years' time, we need to get it down to 2%. The fiscal uh, public debt-to-GDP ratio is 67%, let us say, and we need to get it down to 50%. So some targets, either implicit or explicit, are always there uh, whenever governments engage in fiscal consolidation. So these targets are very important, and we need to understand how they're done and, and why they're done. And I go back to the mother of all targets, um, and I think the, the beginning of the loss of innocence when it comes to fiscal policy, and that is the Maastricht Treaty of 1992, which is a prime example of a target-driven approach to fiscal policy. And there, as you know, <clears throat> the long-run fiscal targets for the Euro Eurozone countries, I'm not talking about the European Union, but the Eurozone within the European Union, 19 of them at the moment, I think, specified a 3% budget deficit and a 60% debt-to-GDP ratio. These were the specified targets. And the idea was that in the long run, member states ought to be able to operate within those limits. So this is a, one of the best examples of setting targets that we know of, and way back in 1992. More recently, um, if you go back to, if you look at the OECD, they've decided instead of when you say a target, when you say 3%, when you say 60%, these are what we, call, what we would call point estimates. They are precise, specific estimates. But instead of estimates, as we know in statistics, and here I'm thinking of Selva, it's better to talk about confidence intervals as opposed to point statistics. So, uh, so as a result of confidence, so, and they, they, they're, <coughs> so there they've come up with what might be called confidence intervals, so quasi-confidence intervals, just to say, well, look, you know, for high-income countries, and what they've done is they've basically differentiated the countries by income levels and, and, and development levels. So for high-income countries, public debt should not exceed anywhere between 70 to 90 percent. Okay. For the Eurozone, it should be 50 to 70. So as you can see, it is within the Maastricht Treaty estimate, but is a, there's a band around the 60 point, if you like. And for emerging economies, countries such as India, Indonesia, South Africa, Brazil, and so on and so forth, should be uh, between 30 to 50. So the, this then is a, this, this a newer approach where instead of point <coughs> estimates, you go for, as I said, uh, bands or confidence intervals. Now, what would be the rationale? Why would we talk in terms of, of, of targets? And I'm, I'm just using fiscal debt targets as an example. Well, the argument, and I'm sure that as soon as you pick up the papers or you listen to somebody on CNBC or, or, or Business Insider or whatever, uh, the first expression that you often hear about is market confidence. The idea is that if you have high debt and deficit ratios relative to the thresholds that we have agreed to, or at least suggested, then it leads to loss of market confidence. The private sector loses confidence in the ability of governments to manage their finances. Now, when you do that, the idea is that borrowing costs will rise sharply, private investment will decline, and growth as a result will decline. That's the whole idea. So it's this confidence issue that is uh, first and foremost the consideration given in justifying fiscal consolidation. So consolidation, in this case, the instruments are you have a combination of tax increases and spending cuts to meet those fiscal targets that I've talked about, are both desirable and expansionary. Why is it desirable and expansionary? Well, 
The argument is that once you do that and you send a signal to the private sector that you're serious about managing your finances, it boosts market confidence, it reduces borrowing costs, stimulates private investment, and thus revives growth. Sometimes, therefore, this oxymoron, expansionary fiscal consolidation, is, is used in order to justify this particular thesis. So what is then the evidence? So what we're going to look at is, okay, the theory is fine, but let us look at the evidence in terms of this particular approach. So because um, I was writing this paper of Azerbaijan, and because I am aware that you know the Azerbaijan government is keen to find out about what's happening in Europe, uh, we decided from the ILO team that was assembled for this particular mission to actually talk about the Eurozone experience and also the OECD, because that's where most of the work has been done, and that's where I think the most recent example of fiscal consolidation is absolutely evident. So there is a lot of optimism that fiscal consolidation will deliver the Eurozone from its difficulties. Uh, and that optimism, unfortunately, I'll argue, <clears throat> and I'll submit, uh, is not grounded in evidence. So there was uh, large-scale fiscal consolidation, and defined as 4% of GDP uh, in the Eurozone between 2011 to 2013. So that was the peak of it. It's tapered off since then, and it wasn't all that obvious before 2011. So you have what we call in economics a natural experiment. You were able to see, well, here was an experiment, policy experiment that was done, and let us find out what is it that happened. So initially, Eurozone officials wanted to argue that it was not it was essential. Without uh, such an exercise, things would fall apart. And then when the evalu evaluation started, it, it unfortunately confirmed the fears of those who argued that this consolidation was inappropriate. So GDP declined by 3.5% according to some estimates due to this fiscal consolidation. Greece was the worst hit, as we all know. And in the OECD also, if you look at the OECD cases, there are multiple episodes of fiscal consolidation uh, going back to the 1970s, <coughs> coming right down to the 2000s, uh, which you can look at negative effects. So I'm, I'm setting up this global or Eurocentric, European-centric evidence such that it, it then allows me to talk more about, more about Azerbaijan in the second part of my discussion. And... The estimates that have been done um, by, say, Larry Ball from Johns Hopkins, uh, Prakash Longani from IMF and, and a few others together, that they're associated with rising inequality, a reduction in the wage share, and increasing long-term unemployment. That's what you see. I have some specific numbers. Um, I'll see if I can, because I'm, I'm writing another paper similar to this, so I think I looked at the numbers the other day, where we can actually uh, give, assign some numbers to these, to these estimates that have been done. Okay, so this is based on 17 OECD countries. So what the, the, these studies typically do is that they take a series of countries and then they count the number of episodes of fiscal consolidation. Sometimes they come up with 100 episodes, 50 episodes, 80 episodes, and for those episodes, then they look at what are their effects. So the, these episodes for 17 countries runs between 1978 to 2009. So this is a reasonably long period of observation. And what do these episodes lead to? Well, it says if you use the Gini coefficient as a measure of inequality, that goes up by 3.4%. 
if you look at the wage share in total GDP, that goes down by nearly 1%, and long-run unemployment goes up by 0.5%. So these are the long-run effects on top of the short-run output losses that have been documented in the case of the Eurozone. So this is the evidence that we have from the European and OECD experience. And I'm sure Australia is part of those, of those episodes, just that I haven't uh, found, you know, extracted Australia individually from those case studies. So what then are the lessons learned that we can use in order to focus more on the Azerbaijan experience. There's no doubt that the short-run cost of fiscal consolidation is quite high and that they can offset any long-run gain. And this is the, the most interesting part. The most interesting part is, even after all this slash-and-burn strategy that governments can end up doing, the target of reducing debt-to-GDP ratio can turn out to be elusive. You can't, cannot really seem to be able to, to do something to that. Here is an example. Eurozone, okay? Debt-to-GDP ratio in the third quarter of 2015 was 92% approximately, while in 2011 it was 86%. And so if you look at the debt-to-GDP ratios for the Eurozone, it's actually higher today than it was yesterday, despite uh, a synchronized and fairly deep fiscal consolidation exercise. It's not easy to get the debt-to-GDP ratio down, and I will, I'm more than happy to engage in a discussion of why it's such a slippery thing to do. If you look at the OECD average debt-to-GDP ratio today, it is 111%, okay? And it was around 70-odd percent some years ago, despite all the consolidation that has happened in the Eurozone and also in the UK. And we also know from the pertinent literature that the relationship between debts, deficits, and growth are not, actually not really robust. And we also know, and this is where I think a statistician would have helped in terms of his humility, is that point estimates are never reliable. When you have considerable uncertainty, you must really go for confidence intervals. Therefore, you should use a range uh, instead of a specific number. And one should also pay attention not just to the debt per se, but how the debt is financed and used. Prudent borrowing, especially when there is ample fiscal space and low borrowing costs, is desirable if directed towards productive investment. We know today uh, following the, um, so the RBA's interest rate cut, the policy rate, it's probably historically the lowest ever in Australia. And I understand that records have been kept in the UK from the 17th century, and borrowing costs in the UK have been the lowest ever relative to the 70s of the last 300 years. So the argument that some people would make, and certainly someone like John Quiggan from the University of Queensland often makes, is that if, if you're a business entity and you're faced with low borrowing costs that are likely to persist for a long period of time, why on earth won't you make use of that? Borrow it, invest in all kinds of things, digital networks, upgrading of schools, hospitals, roads, and so on and so forth, that generates a social return that can easily absorb the low borrowing costs that you have today. Why do you feel you have to do bell tightening when interest rates have actually experienced a secular decline, a secular decline across the world? across the world, for the advanced economies in particular. So, what kind of investment can governments do? Well, as I've already suggested, more spending on health, on education, on infrastructure, social protection, and active labor market policies. Germany is often advised uh, to um, upgrade its infrastructure, and Larry and I were talking about this particular German city that you visit, which is crumbling apart, 
and maybe more more spending that needs to go into infrastructure. And Ah, okay. You can put it in. Sorry, okay, Mr. Five. Fiscal consolidation, if required, should be combined. And this is a honestly econ 101. The, the standard prescription that we do when we do macro uh, at that level is to say, well, if you're going to do fiscal consolidation, combine it with expansionary monetary policy and competitive devaluation. The problem is, of course, that it means that governments need to have control over monetary policy, which Australia has, and over exchange rate. But the Eurozone countries did not have them. Greece did not have control over its exchange rate because it was pegged to the euro, it, it, it used the euro. Neither did it have any control over monetary policy because it was really run by the ECB, the European Central Bank. And as a result, it was really sort of straight-jacketed and could really do nothing in terms of responding to the problems that it faced. We've also looked at, I've, I've got uh, one or two papers that I did on, on the role of market confidence. What does that really mean? It is a mythical beast, frankly. And it's been misinterpreted. The argument is that markets care about the fiscal stance of governments. Certainly they do, but they also care about growth. And if you have a situation where growth is likely to be low and be made lower by fiscal consolidation, markets will actually react adversely and not positively. That is a very important point that is often missed. And therefore, if you do any analysis of what are the determinants of market confidence, and if you plug in some variables, inevitably growth becomes one of the arguments that allows us to understand the determinants of market confidence. And therefore, just to focus only on public finances without any reference to growth is unfortunately myopic. So, we're not saying that fiscal consolidation is not desirable. Certainly it is, and it can be. And it can also be unavoidable if a country has an unsustainable situation. But even here, the advice that one would provide is take it easy, do it slowly, rather than going for a big bang approach. That would be my summary of what is it that we know about fiscal consolidation in terms of evidence and the lessons that can be engendered out of those kind of evidence. So let me now move on to Azerbaijan, that exotic country that you saw in the map, which is the size of Switzerland, which is, what, 7 million people, resource-rich, but it was not resource-rich forever. It became resource-rich recently, as recently as 2000, when the flow of oil and natural gas kept coming through. And by all accounts, we may not like the political complexion of the government, authoritarian, even dynastic, but it has done remarkably well in recent years. It has come a long way from the trauma of the early to mid-1990s. It was a former Soviet Union republic, and when it engaged in a divorce from the, the former Soviet Union bloc, it went through a calamitous experience. In 1995, GDP was only 35% of the 1989 level. So it wasn't a particularly rich country to start with. And then it, GDP dropped so much because suddenly all of its industries just vanished. As a result of this breakup of the Soviet Union, that its GDP was 35% of what it was in 1991, even six years, five, six years. So, so, so it, it really was facing absolute dire straits. And at that time, certainly uh, fiscal consolidation was necessary because it was unsustainable and the government engaged in it in response to advice given by the fund. Today, Azerbaijan is a upper-middle-income country. Extreme poverty, by international standards, as far as we know, has been eliminated. Now, it's entirely possible 
that like many governments in different parts of the world, they probably fudge the data a bit. But even with the fudging, if you, if you go around the country and if you look at, if you look at the visual cues, you do get a sense of a country that's reasonably prosperous. And there has been, in terms of what we know, commendable progress in both social and labor market indicators, and I'll share some of those indicators with you. The government has engaged in a proactive use of oil and uh, natural gas resources. Here is an example of the kind of progress that has taken place. Uh, if you look at 2000, the unemployment rate was in the double digits, 11.7% or 8%. It's come down to below 5 uh, over the years. If you look at the employment rate, the proportion of the population that are in employment, that hit a low around the end of the 1990s, and since then it's been going up steadily. Uh, and uh, an employment rate of about 64-65% by global norms is, is, is a good outcome. If you look at real wages, now this is a real wage index, not growth rates. So as you can see, as long as the index is above 100 in, in all the years that I've indicated, that means the real wages have been growing. And there's evidence that real wages have been growing over time. So good employment uh, outcome, good wage growth. And it is against that background that we talk about fiscal consolidation in Azerbaijan. So despite this progress, Azerbaijan is regularly exhorted by external agencies to engage in fiscal consolidation. An example would be, once again, one of my standard sort of bedtime reading is Article 4 consultation uh, of the fund, uh, because there you find out a lot about what goes on between the government, between the member state and the fund. Um, and to its credit, it's, these days it's very transparent because you can download all the data, all the documents. And so I downloaded, as part of this exercise, all the documents for, the, for Azerbaijan, all the consultations that took place between 2008 right up to 2014. And every single document, the fund would say, Azerbaijan needs to engage in fiscal consolidation. 2009, Azerbaijan needs to engage in fiscal consolidation. 2010, and on and on and on. So it keeps on making the same kind of advice. Now, when you go to a doctor and you're always told that you should do this every time you go, even though you're well, then you begin to wonder whether the advice is anchored in evidence. So that was my concern, that the evidence was probably not being sensitive to changes on the ground. But it did scare the government to the extent that the Azerbaijan government, through the Ministry of Finance and the Central Bank, did engage in significant fiscal tightening. In 2014 and more has been promised. When I read the uh, Azerbaijan media, the English language media, I found out that the government, which is pretty rich actually in many ways, was even considering an emergency loan from the fund and the World Bank because it got so scared that it would probably run out of money. Now, how do you justify that? In the case of Azerbaijan, it's something that we ought to be aware of because it's a resource-rich country. So for a resource-rich country, we sometimes use what's called the so-called permanent income rule. The idea of the permanent income rule is as follows. Okay? So you've got these natural resources, but they are going to be exhausted. In the case of Azerbaijan, they'll be exhausted by the mid-2030s. So what do you do? It's like a windfall. You suddenly got all this bonanza. So what do you do with this bonanza? Well, you can gamble it away. You can eat and drink, have parties, and just fritter it away. Alternatively, you can store them in the form of financial assets and so on and so forth, and generate the return from that and therefore make sure that the spending is in line with the return that you generate from the financial asset, which then become, is allowed to build to a level that is equivalent to the reserves that you have under the ground in terms of that. That is the 
so-called build. So the idea is for a resource-rich country with finite natural resources, which fits the description of Azerbaijan, spending should not exceed, exceed real return for financial assets, held typically under a so-called sovereign wealth fund. So it is independent of the government, it is run by professional managers and so on and so forth, and of course it seeks advice from Goldman Sachs and this, that and the other. So the aim is to ensure, as I said, that the real value of financial assets are equivalent to the value of natural resources that are being depleted. And the argument is that in doing so, you're leaving behind a bequest for future Azerbaijanis. So, so it responds to our notions of intergenerational equity. And the fact that prices of oil and natural resource gas is dwindling it reinforces the argument in favor of the so-called permanent government. There are other considerations. The argument is that you know when you have a windfall, there's a lot of money coming in, a lot of investment. It pushes up the exchange rate and makes domestic industries uh, insufficiently competitive or uncompetitive. It crowds out what you call the tradable sector, and the government, because it got all this largest, therefore tries to spend by expanding the public sector with a lot of waste and inefficiency. That is a standard argument that one makes about resource-rich countries, but. There are counter-arguments, there's contrary evidence. And think about it for a moment. You get a windfall gain, as I said, you can waste it, or you can put it in the form of financial assets, or you can use it to upgrade the educational standards of your children. A kid wants to do an MBA, get an expanded Harvard Business School, have the money to send him there. You can put it in property, and so on and so forth. So there are other ways in, in, in which you can, you can, you can set up invest resources in the community that you've been born in and so on. So there are many other ways in which you can actually leave a bequest for future generations. When current governments invest in infrastructure, in health and education, and I must remember also dealing with global warming and, and environmental protection schemes, then they're also leaving some assets, real assets, for future generations. It's not true that you can only generate a bequest through financial assets. And this is the upfront investment that the Azerbaijan government did. Whether or not they actually thought consciously in those terms, this is what they actually did. So in a very short space of time, in about seven to ten years, they actually transformed a lot of the country. And it was one of the reasons why they managed to eradicate poverty in such a relatively short space of time. Had they been fiscally conservative and followed the route of, oh, I will only spend what I generate in terms of return in order to maintain the stock of financial assets, then I think that they would have been much poorer. And I'll, I will give you an example of what I call the East Timor pad, the Timor Leste paradox when this happens uh, in the discussion. So there were some dire predictions, and once again, the attempt is to scare the government into doing things. So one IMF study actually said if you don't do what we say, then your income in 2024 will be 20% lower than what it is today. That was the estimate that was given, but you know, if you look at the projections, it's not the case. If you look at the foreign exchange reserves of Azerbaijan, it's got 26 months of import coverage, and this is more than eight times the prescribed potential threshold for external sustainability. And I've given you a graph of debt-to-GDP ratio. Recall the fact that for emerging economies, the recommendation by the, IM, uh, the OECD is 30 to 50 percent, and it is below that. And generally speaking, Azerbaijan always had a reasonably low debt-to-GDP ratio, as has been the case for Australia for the last 20, 30 years or more. So, if you use the application of OECD debt management guidelines, it does not seem to me that uh, Azerbaijan is fiscally distressed. There's no evidence when we look at it. And the full paper is available, by the way, on the, on, on the web. 
uh, and there's no evidence. I, I put some evidence there of public sector systematic waste or inefficiency. There has been certainly an appreciation of the exchange rate, but there's been a large-scale devaluation recently that has un sort of managed to respond to that problem of real exchange rate appreciation. If you look at current government expenditure, there was a huge spike in the mid early 1990s. It's come down. It's about 10% of GDP. I wouldn't call that profligate in any way. If you look at the share of public employment, that has declined and is still. So I cannot say that the public sector has also expanded so much that it can be described as a bloated, bloated sector. So what do we do? I mean, it's not enough simply to say that, you know, Azerbaijan should not engage in fiscal consolidation because we have to be able to come up with a more positive agenda. And the argument is that fiscal consolidation, even if it is pertinent, even if it's desirable, even if it's necessary, will not respond to the key agenda of private sector-led economic diversification, which Azerbaijan needs because it needs to diversify out of its dependence on the natural resource sector into other sectors. And the standard prescription is to say, well, look, the problem is that if you can somehow ease the cost of doing business by implementing regulatory reforms, including tax reforms, then that is the way to unleash the energies of the private sector, and growth will follow as a result of that. But this depends a lot, in my argument, uh, on whether the private sector actually perceives regulatory reforms to be critical. It's like saying market confidence. What, what are the determinants of market confidence? In this case, what is it that the private sector really is looking for. Um, we do have survey results now, and we have had those survey results for a long time. They're based on the World Bank Enterprise Surveys. They're downloadable. They are now available for more than 100 countries, for more than 130,000 firms. And out of that, you can easily generate a simple table to find out what are the perceptions of the private sector with respect to the constraints the private sector itself reveals through survey questions. And here, I don't know whether you can read that. Basically, if I look at the numbers, I don't see evidence that they're terribly, in Azerbaijan at least, terribly worried about tax rates or tax administration. They're terribly worried about business licensing permits and so on and so forth. They're usually well below 5% in terms of responses. And they're not at all worried about labor regulations. What they do care about is lack of access to finance. That is what they care about. Small business enterprise saying, we wish we could expand, but we cannot because we don't have access to credit from formal sources. So that's a major challenge. So I will conclude, and this will be, I'll make it my last, uh, second last slide, I think, uh, by saying what would be the pertinent policy issues. I would argue, and this is, of course, the recommendation that we made to the Minister for Labor, that to continue to advocate for the continuation of a strategy of using oil and gas-free wealth to invest in health, education, infrastructure, and social protection, to pay attention to financial inclusion, because lack of finances is, is such an issue, to invest in active labor market policies like training and, and so on and so forth, while noting that some work better than others. And this is uh, just a, a, a final slide to suggest that you can use evaluations, what we call meta-evaluations, to decide which kind of interventions you should do. And then, we, because it was the Ministry of Labor, we suggested that based on the evaluations, if you do some of the following things, then this is likely to bring about some benefits. Focus more on employment services, on skills training, on public employment programs that probably don't work as much. Don't go for wage and employment subsidies. They don't seem to work very well. There's insufficient evidence that you can build up entrepreneurs through government support. And that whatever you do, tax cuts, 
uh, do not necessarily deliver the kind of promised growth and employment dividends uh, that have been uh, that is often advocated by conservatively inclined practitioners. Let's put it that way. Okay, so on that basis, I'll say thank you very much for coming. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.